Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. It's just past 7 p.m. on 3RRR, and you're with Bite Into It. Thanks to Kate for the last three hours. Kate will be back next Wednesday with the distant sky from 4 to 7 p.m. So tonight we speak with a founder who's trying to help kids find books that they really want to read, and we get the story behind the field with Ben Pettingill. Before we get there, my co-hosts this evening, Paul Callahan, Hey, Vanessa. And Joe Eaton. Good evening. Great to have you with us. Uh, I'm Vanessa Taholka. What's happening in news tonight? We did have late breaking news, Paul. We did. Uh, some of you may have seen this, some of you may not have, but Deliveroo, uh, some breaking news there. Um, they have gone into voluntary uh, administration as of as of today, it looks like. Yeah, an um, email came to me at 440 Um Adam Bant seemed to get the 450 email because he tweeted out immediately after that. Um, yeah, so that leaves 15,000 local riders, um, 12,000 partner restaurants, um, 120 staff. Um, unsure of what all of this looks like. Um, the rationale, uh, based on the, the kind of the media release that went out, is that uh, in Australia we have concluded that achieving a sustainable position of leadership in the market is not possible without a disproportionate level of investment, which would have highly uncertain returns, which is... Um, probably small comfort uh, to the many people that were relying on them for some of their income. Yeah, it's it's pretty rubbish news for their drivers. Um, but also, you know, I guess it speaks to the real uncertainty uh, in the gig economy and the lack of protections. You know, that's very little notice that those workers are getting, uh, presumably. Yeah, like lack of protection as, as well as sort of the, the global nature of this, like apparently Deliveroo left Germany um, in 2019 um, and it also sort of started and, and moved out of both the Netherlands and Spain as well. So these kind of globalised com- 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 companies, sorry, um, just kind of dropping in and out 
of spaces. I'm also wondering if there might be um, a slight element of good news story here in the sense that, you know, they're speaking to their difficulty becoming profitable in this market or, or sustaining profitability here. And I wonder if some of our award protections have made a bit of a difference and they're just, you know, and they're like, right, our model doesn't work here. It's like, well, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. Anyway, we We'll wait for the analysis to drop and the actual figures to come out and, and that will be quite interesting. Um, but, yeah, pretty rough times. So love going out to delivery drivers and uh, riders and everyone at the moment. I mean, and sadly it comes on the back of like a whole wave of certainly tech industry um, layoffs. And, uh, I mean, across the board, like obviously the, the kind of the large-scale meta layoffs recently um, and just this week um, starting the, to see Amazon um, and they were the first company to lose one trillion dollars uh, in value, um, which is pretty significant. But um, yeah, so dipping uh, to eight hundred and seventy-nine billion um, from its peak of one point eight eight trillion. Just numbers that I, I love. How when you read the articles, it's just it's just a B because the number of zeros are just is is kind of incomprehensible. Yeah. Um, but they are talking about laying off three percent of their their corporate workforce, which is about ten thousand. Um, employees as well. Again, just staggering, staggering numbers. What's interesting is they're primarily talking about their devices, retail and HR sectors there, which, uh, you know, when you work with Amazon, you know, if you're working in any, in the big end of town in any way, you know, there's very few options in terms of cloud service providers. So, you know, they're, they're a really um, big part of, you know, where Aussies are interacting with Amazon. And then on the flip side, the retail side, you know, Amazon Prime coming to Australia not that long ago. Uh, so interesting to see the retail aspect of this. You know, that's actually where consumers are more likely to feel the changes there. Will be interesting to see. Yeah, and also how much of it is is about the, the you know the market price rather than about um, you know organizational functionality um, or you know actual project level stuff. You know, Wall Street uh, and the, the share market like loves these announcements because it triggers uh, you know increases in the share price. So it's it's so hard to know how much that human cost is so much impacted yeah and and whether will it'll even be noticeable to any amazon customers in australia or if this is predominantly in the states you know um it's it's funny how some global corporate changes can actually be really distinctly felt through a product around the world and then other things you're a bit like oh i didn't really notice that that happened but i'm sure the people at headquarters are noticing yeah and how much they you know we sort of are seeing this with twitter with the kind of the the, the significant changes that are happening there and the, and the people being being laid off how how much impact you know that has based on those local contexts as well and the kind of the um you know the the workplace laws and the requirements and the the guidelines there so there's the other part of the uh, opportunity that springs as uh, as indeed hope does eternal after after these rough patches where you know for example you see the big players squeezed a bit trying to be more profitable and all these talented people flood the market and go we're going to build the sort of jobs that we want to have and suddenly you've got you know these dynamic interesting products and options popping up all over the place so I'm a, a little bit hopeful that um, you know it's more something that we're, we're thinking about I think with the exodus from Facebook 
you think of some of the talented people who've just entered the market there. Yeah, and I think that that's the that has to be the hope, right? Is that all, is that the all these people and all these talented um, impacted by this, like go find something new or go on to to bigger and better things and and kind of make it through this this transition period as as best they can. Yeah, I guess um, side note, you know, related to this Amazon layoffs news is that uh, Jeff Bezos dropped an interview with CNN on Monday. And in that conversation, he's committed to giving away the majority of his $124 billion fortune. And there's a a quite cynical element here of, you know, let's pair this sort of corporate, you know, this sort of philanthropic news with massive bad corporate news. So there's that aspect. But there's also, you know, he's long been criticised for his lack of philanthropy. Um, And it's been particularly stark in the last few years since he and his ex-wife split uh, because Mackenzie Scott has doled out four billion to four hundred sixty-five organisations in less than a year, so she's you know very keen on let's use this money to do something good in the world. Um, not that I think philanthropy is the best way that these money these monies could be targeted and spent. I mean, it'd be so much greater if these things were going out in in proper accountability and taxes and actually being you know democratically decided where those things were going. But yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, and I, I think like it is it is hard not to look at both of these announcements together, um, and and really question. Is it? Does it I'm make feeling more sense? a bit ill. Yeah, yeah does yeah. it? Does it make more sense just to keep all those people employed? And again, you, how much of it is potentially the corporate machinery and the the sort of the economic machinery of a of a? Sorry, I'm feeling quite cynical there. But like, <laughs> but like, how much of it is that versus how much of it is is just yeah the the managing of a news cycle? Yeah. Hey, conscious how, how, you know, much of a bummer the news has been till this point. Um, Paul, why don't you leave us with something kind of cool that tech's been doing lately? Yeah, something, something slight, slightly more optimistic. Um, so a recent study, um, which you can find at cell.com slash iScience, has basically been researching um, whether or not uh, AirPods could, could operate uh, as hearing aids. Um, and they ran them through uh, a series of tests, and basically there are kind of like five indicators um, that, that hearing aids are measured by. And, and in this study, they, they discovered that basically AirPods fulfilled like four out of five because their, their noise cancelling technology is so phenomenal. It's amazing what what they can do. Yeah, yeah, and look, and I think that this this is really interesting because some of the the other statistics in the study that I didn't realize. I mean, this this relates to America, but like, but like, apparently by twenty sixty, like, it's, we're going to have like this a huge increase in the number of people with hearing issues. But there's there's something like seventy five percent of people with hearing issues don't use hearing aids. So the possibility to use consumer level technology. Um, you know, that it's potentially cheaper or more accessible um, can potentially be transformative. And it's a really growing sector um, of the market. You know, there are a bunch of people trying to solve not just hearing loss, but just those issues where it's irritating to have loud background noise and then trying to be navigating, you know, what you want to hear. And people are trying to solve for that. So it's just like it's, you know, noisy restaurant hearing device sort of stuff. It's pretty amazing. Um, or just that whole, you know, that very known flight flight noise, you know, noise cancellation sort of issue where people are using their headphones and not even listening to anything in it, but just to block out yeah, that, yeah. that drone. Um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, so yeah. so maybe a good thing to come out of a giant corporation just to kind of close off the news. Oh, look, lots of, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't say much. Me with my number of Apple devices in the bag right now. So, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some good things. 
how to find books that kids will really enjoy. Do you want to be the best present selector this coming Christmas? Well, Meena Thamaraja is the CEO and founder of Huey, an edtech startup using machine learning to create a book bot that makes it fun for children to find books that they love. Welcome to the show, Meena. Hi, how are you? Really well, thank you. It's great that you could join us this evening. Um, we, My pleasure. We love the idea of Huey, but we want to get to know Huey a little bit more. Um, when did you first get the idea for, for Huey and, um, you know, what was your little spark of inspiration? So I guess the first, um, the first spark of inspiration was when my son started school and he was coming home with books that he he was required to read and the very first book he brought home was uh it was really boring and I made him read it and then I asked him to read it again and he said he kind of got this pained look on his face (laughs) and he said do I have to it's boring and I agreed with him and then we you know we we sought out some books that um that he would like to read but I, I guess I couldn't understand why he was being given these books that were boring for him to read. It didn't seem to it was a chore for him to read them. And so, um, you know, and as he got older, I realised that my taste in books were quite different to his. And so it became increasingly harder to find books for him. And I just thought there had to be a way using data to, um, to surface the books that he would like to read. That is a very relatable story. I think even just that that sense that you so want to find things that kids love in any area and that you're trying to to connect with their interests and um, and push the right things. And then there's also that, I think, that, that feeling that we have that our taste is a bit dated, that um, the books that we remember loving and enjoying might also not be any good anymore. Um, this this yeah, idea that parents that... have to keep up. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, there's a lot of research as well that shows that the books that kids really love are the books that they choose for themselves. And so even if you do have the same taste as your as your child, and I think there are, I think, you know, it doesn't really matter how old a book is, I think it can still have an audience. But I think empowering a child to find the books for themselves and kind of go down the rabbit hole of, you know, investigating books is a really powerful thing. It means that they're invested in the in the choice of that book. So I can think there are so many experts that you might tap when you're trying to build a book bot uh, targeting children um, or even parents with, you know, children in mind as the end users. How did you go around identifying, you know, who had useful things to contribute to your product? So... I guess at the time, so part of it was my own expertise, which I, I don't like to trumpet, but I had been working at the ABC um, in division at the time called Innovation, and I had pitched and developed a lot of uh, really popular children's apps. And so I felt like I knew what was, ne- what was needed in terms of an interface for, or an experience that could be designed for children to be in the driving seat. And then 
I I also was working at um, CSIRO's Data61, and I was working as a user experience lead on a lot of big data and machine learning projects. So I knew what was going on behind the scenes. I knew what would be needed to create a kind of ground truth data set. <sighs> I was really influenced by uh, Dr. Margaret Merger, who's a, an Australian um, researcher who specialises in reading for pleasure and in, you know, surfacing books in the library. And she was, um, she gave really great advice to us and she's written several books and, you know, she's very prolific in the in that space and we were lucky to have her advice. Um, but I think the, the thing that really helped us on the way was working with the State Library of New South Wales. So we were able to work with them quite closely on... Um, the way in which we were labelling books and then the way in which we delivered we delivered them as well within the, um, the conversational interface that we had. And so the very first deployment we had was in Sydney at the State Library of New South Wales. Did you have to do a lot of research? You know, librarians are great at categorising books in lots of different ways and, you know, you start in fiction and non-fiction and then you keep breaking down and breaking down into all these different things. Did you think that the way that adults thought about categorising books was at all aligned of how children might think about the content of what they're reading? I assumed that it would be. And then when we, when we looked into it a bit further and investigated exactly how um, books are, are labelled, it for me it felt as if books are labelled in libraries for information retrieval mm. rather than for, um, for browsing by interest. Mm. So, I mean, the, the theory that we had was that, you know, it's, it's great if children and anyone finds a genre that they love, let's take science fiction, but it would be rare for someone to love every science fiction book. And so... The question there was, well, what is it about the science fiction books that someone would really love? And we um, decided that it was probably writing style, so the tone of the book. And um, we, you know, we did a test where we labelled just a couple of, I think it was only 100 books that we labelled for writing style. And then we just did a test... um, at a conference, the Children's Book Council of Australia conference. Um, it was in Canberra, and we just wanted to get feedback from the attendees at that conference, and it went down really well. So we oh, thought we were amazing. onto something. Yeah. Um, and um, and then and you know the kind of um, the kind of labels that we were applying to those books were things like witty, beautiful, you know, dry, dark. Those are not um, labels that you would traditionally see um, in a, you know, in a library catalogue entry for mm. for a book. You've sort of invented like a delightful type of metadata. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there are there are other organisations that are um, that are looking at those tones as well. But we're, I guess, one of the things that we've done that um, we think is quite unique is that we've used machine learning to take these hundreds of labels 
and then uh, look at patterns so that we can have some really finite uh, clusters where we've got some patterns going on around books that fall within, you know, particular tones. So we have a, a whole set of books that we, we call beautiful, um, but within that... We've got dark and beautiful books. Aww. We've got beautiful and whimsical books. And, These you know, are like and Instagram those, trends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love these descriptions and I guess I should say as well that dark and beautiful and dark and, you know, beautiful and whimsical, those are the human kind of labels that we've applied to a machine-generated yeah. cluster. Yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a bit of interpretation going on there. Would you say that um, there's some similarities in how you're applying that machine learning to effectively the way we use um, sentiment analysis, you know, going through text and then pulling that sort of thing out? I mean, I'm, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm a little bit dubious about sentiment analysis. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's completely fair. Because it just seems so, um, I don't know, binary. So... I, you know, what we're trying to do at Huey is to create a human-in-the-loop um, machine learning process where we're using machines for what they're really good at and we're using humans for what they're really strong at and trying to create a nexus between between the two where they can work in harmony together to create the best results. So... I don't think we would ever let a machine learning algorithm just run without human intervention. I love to hear that, Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's really important. And one of my um, ex-colleagues, Ellen Broad, um, she's at ANU and she talks about data, kind of managing data as being like tending a garden Mm. and, you know, sort of pruning the weeds and encouraging the things that you want to grow. So. Uh, to flourish and I think that's really what we're doing here with our book data that's a beautiful way of thinking of any ecosystem of information really that's really nice um so let's flip it a bit we've we've sort of delved a bit into some of the the how and the technology behind this and then you know when you got to the interface side were you thinking um about is this primarily a tool that you want kids to be able to use directly or was it going to be mediated through parents or, you know, teachers or librarians or something? Did you explore a few different paths there maybe? So we do a lot of interviews with families and with children and we found that the place that children are going most often to find books is the school library. And that is somewhere in Australia, most, you know, children, primary school age children, they've got a weekly library lesson. And so they're always going there. And so we felt that to have the maximum impact, we create something for use in the library where children can just go up and find, they can use the tool to find the books that they would like. So... Always at the heart of this, we thought we needed to create something really easy for children to quickly find a book, even if they didn't know exactly what they were looking for. That sounds really fun. I had no idea that kids had a library class. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. It's great. It's great that they have that. I think grown-ups maybe need a library class every now and again. 
just to um, to get back in. That's, that's yeah. Awesome. I um, it's just about scheduling that in, isn't it? Into our lives. Maybe an online class. This is this is such a difficult problem, and I, I love the the sort of um, the really considered and kind of gentle approach that you've taken to it. It does make me think of a slightly thornier. Um, potential pivot area which is of teenagers who I find quite a tricky audience Um, how far are you thinking of extending Huey's capabilities that's really interesting that you raised that I mean the system that we've created is really um, it's designed to be agnostic so it's really just about the data that you put in and um you know, and the books that you add in. And we've actually got, uh, while we've targeted primary school age children, we've actually got quite a few high schools that are using us. And, you know, we we kind of say that we focus on kind of, you know, primary school up to 13. But those books for 13-year-olds that are at an advanced level, they're appropriate for, you know, early high school as well. It's really, I think, for us the thorniest issue as we get through into the teenage years is more about, um, I guess, contentious issues. So um, things like violence and, um, you know, theme, basically mature themes um, and how we haven't really created the framework to deal with that. Mm. At the moment, you can just select an age um, and it will... Um, we have a maturity rating on all the books that we recommend, and so we will recommend a book that's appropriate for the age of the reader. But children can go in and just pick whatever age they want. And, oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So if you're, they're feeling a bit precocious <laughs> yeah. today, they can do that, like slide the scale right up and run with it. Yeah, they can. It's um, And we, we also we don't conflate age with reading ability. Mm. So... Um, I think the thing that's the most interesting is kids playing around with their reading ability and, you know, seeing what happens when they pick books that are a bit more complex. Oh, that's because, fantastic, yeah. Yeah. So they want we, to be challenged. We know, yeah, and if a child is interested in a book, it's, it's been shown that they will persevere with a book that's considered too complex with them because they're engaged with the content. Definitely. So we let them, let them choose that. Oh, I love that. I love that idea that it's not about locking things down and out and closing off options. It's really quite expansive. Yeah, we thought that was really important to empower children to make those decisions for themselves about, as much as they would in a library when they're um, randomly picking books off the shelf and trying to figure out which book they'd like to read. Yeah. So, Mina, what what message would you like to leave our audience with? Where can they find out more and, you know, if particularly if they don't have access to a, a school library just this second? So, right now, we're actually creating a product for families where children, parents can actually create lists for their kids and um, children can uh, say what they think about those books and kind of get feedback from their parents around the little reviews that they, they might leave that, um, you know, that are really short and just have little emojis there. Yeah. So you can go to our website is hueybooks.com. So that's H-U-E-Y books.com. And 
uh, families can go in and just um, find books. Um, they'll need to leave that email address so that they can save those books um, for later. Um, but, yeah, I'd encourage people to go to hueybooks.com and sign up. It's um, over the next uh, few months we're going to be developing quite a lot of features and we're really looking for families that want to engage with this over the summer holidays um, and get their kids addicted to reading. Well, it's a beautiful mission and it's a really fun product. I wish it had been around when I was a kid. So all the best with that development pipeline, Mina. It's really thrilling to hear all about Huey Books. Thank you so much, Vanessa. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. Um, Last Wednesday, uh, Australian of the Year Dylan Alcott helped to launch The Field, which is a new job site designed to connect people with disability to jobs from including employers. Um, Ben Pettingill, a consultant for The Field, joined us tonight to tell us more. Welcome to the show, Ben. Ah, thank you very much for having me. Ben, um, start off by telling us about The, the Field. What, what is it from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, from my perspective, it's a groundbreaking platform uh, designed by people with disability or people with disability, a fully accessible and inclusive uh, job hiring and job seeking platform. And how how did this how did this come about? Like, this sounds incredibly exciting. What was the genesis for the project? I think the genesis has been around for a long, long time. To be completely honest, and when I say that, the Unemployment rate for people with disability or the employment rate, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, for people with disability has not changed in 28 years. So to me, that that says pretty clearly uh, that there is something that exists uh, that is creating barriers for people with disability uh, to gain employment and for traditional mainstream uh, methods. Something wasn't working. Uh, there were there were barriers there. There were challenges there. There were limitations there, and and preventing opportunity. And something needed to change, which is essentially why and where the field was born from. Yeah, and look, just to put you know what you're saying about that um, employment rate, just to kind of put them in context, in the in the media release of the project, that that number is 4.4 million people um, who identify as having a disability, and then 2.1 of those um, are of working age. 2.1 million of those, um, mm. and there's half a million actively seeking work. Like that, that is that is kind of a staggering a staggering number. It's huge numbers when you compare it to the population of people without disability and those employment rates compared to people with disability, it is, like you say, absolutely staggering and quite simply not okay. Yeah, and so what, kind of taking a step back, like what sort of barriers is, is the, the field designed to to address? Uh, so, I mean, I'll, I'll speak from my own personal experience. Uh, so... Me personally, I lost 98% of my eyesight overnight at age 16 to a rare genetic syndrome. So headache one day, find the next. And as you can imagine, that turned my world upside down mm. and crushed a lot of my childhood hopes and dreams in an instant, or, or so I thought. And a lot of those 
uh, doubts and questions and, and uncertainty that I was then faced with, a lot of that was faced around what my future held and what possibilities were going to be out there. What opportunities was I still going to be able to do? Was I still going to be able to access? And that, those uncertainties, those questions, they didn't go away. And as I went through my schooling and got to the end of uh, school thinking about what I wanted to do next, it was, it was challenging because the barriers I was facing were things such as not being able to access job platforms. So I use a... Uh, a screen reader, so screen reading technology uh, works in the background of your computer or your iPad or your phone, whatever that happens to be. I use a program called JAWS on a PC, so that's working in the background constantly and uh, essentially reading everything that's on the screen, everything I'm typing. And a lot of uh, job-seeking platforms where I was looking for work after finishing school simply weren't accessible. You'd be trying to search for, for a particular type of job or a, a particular industry to see uh, what was available and wouldn't read out search results or wouldn't read certain things. And then the uh, other part, the other really big barrier that a lot of people with disability face is when you go through the application process on the office that I was on a, uh, a job-seeking place for my screen reader, I would then be going through the application, tick the box that said, do you have a disability? And all of a sudden, six pages opened up of information about my medical conditions, my medical history, how it impacts me, all of these questions. But as if it was a really um, big deciding factor uh, that I had to provide information on, and as soon as I tick that box, never will I get a response or an interview. So, I mean, that that barrier and and that similarity with me was having a disability uh, was was getting in the way uh, of people wanting to to see whether or not I was capable of of fulfilling a role. So more so more than just you know like just access issues or, or, or disabilities, but also just the kind of the underlying. Um, you know, expectations of these job sites and then the, the kind of the social requirements of, of, of accessing those jobs. Like, again, that sounds like a massive, a really large sort of problem um, to tackle. Um, so how does the field, how does the field kind of step into addressing that? How does it resolve some of those challenges that you encountered? Mm, uh, great question. So let's, let's take it, I suppose, one step at a time in terms of the accessibility of the platform. So something I really struggled with with a number of mainstream platforms with my screen reader not being able to read out all of the information and, and fully access um, the sites to apply for roles. It's been designed with accessibility and inclusion at the forefront um, from the very beginning. So myself as a consultant on the field, the entire time um, from the design and the, the user journey, of, of somebody as a job seeker or a hiring manager um, because we're not just saying that people with disability are wanting to, to seek jobs. Obviously, that's the main objective, but also we want to make this platform fully accessible in case there's hiring managers with disability aren't able to fulfil their role of hosting jobs uh, on mainstream platforms as well. So I was testing the accessibility from my screen reader the entire time. It was a weekly process uh, over the last 12 months. Uh, very extensive, always 
changing little things and, and giving feedback. So the accessibility uh, is one part that's been absolutely at the forefront. And then in terms of uh, those other barriers that we speak about, it gives the power back to the people with disability. So if a job seeker is on the field, they have disability. Uh, we're using the, the honesty system there that job seekers have disability. They're able to provide uh, their accessibility requirements. And when organisations are posting jobs and posting roles, uh, a job seeker with disability is actually able to go on to that company's profile and view some things and learn about that organisation, what their stance on inclusion is, if they have a disability inclusion action plan, watch videos on accessibility walkthrough of the actual organisation and, and the premise that that role takes place and where um, you would be actually working for that job. So you can get a really good understanding of the look and feel to see whether or not that role suits you and your accessibility requirements. So it gives the power back to people with disability uh, in the process, which is fantastic. Uh, Vanessa here, Ben. Uh, that sounds incredible. And, and even some of those features, I think everyone would really like to have that, you know, to be empowered with some of that information when they're looking for work. Uh, so I really like how you flipped it a bit. I do wonder, you know, what sort of work has the field been, you know, ha had to do with employers to mm. kind of educate them about, you know, how they can be more inclusive and um, tap this undertapped kind of resource? Yeah, great question. And uh, I think it starts with going where the energy is because the big thing for for the field is attracting employers, like you say, that want to become more inclusive. And, I mean, to be, honest, to be completely honest, employers on the field are going to be at different stages of how inclusive they are and becoming more inclusive. But the number one thing is they're joining the field because they want to become more inclusive. And the great thing of about the field and the way in which we've designed it is there's always ways in which you can learn and improve uh, your inclusive practices, uh, your accessibility of your workplace. Like you said, even just overcoming misconceptions and unconscious bias within the staff within a workplace that's going to be employing somebody with disability into that workplace is massive. So there's a full uh, learning hub on the field with a number of different resources, video modules, short courses on best practice when it comes to communication and language, overcoming misconceptions and unconscious bias, inclusive recruitment processes, how to uh, best conduct job interviews in inclusive ways, to educate these employers to, to ensure as much as we possibly can that people with disability have a positive experience both in the process of applying for the role but also once they uh, get accepted. That's pretty fantastic, Ben. Um, when we were recently, you know, experiencing lockdowns and things uh, and and so many white-collar jobs were moving to remote work, we saw the way that companies, you know, many companies can actually shift the requirements of employees, you know, to be physically present and what have you. Um, has Have there been any kind of repercussions for from those experiences yet uh, which have affected the dis disability sector? There have been, but I think uh, from personal experience with a lot of the clients we work with, what you've just mentioned is something that we're now having to remind people of because 
there were some fantastic lessons learnt through lockdown around working from home and hybrid working and, and flexible working conditions, which is fantastic. Now that things are going back to, I mean, what people are calling a new normal or, or whatever you want to call it, mm. there's the, the, the hard part that we're finding is there's some people within organisations and there's some leaders doing a real push and having a real emphasis on returning to the office for culture, for connection. And that plays a huge part in an organisation's success, absolutely, but we can't be going too far back to the way things used to be because, like you said, we've learnt so many fantastic lessons about what's possible and that caters to some people with disabilities that aren't able to get to the office but can work very successfully from home. So it's just making sure we don't forget some of those fantastic lessons we've learnt. And I think over time, if organisations can make that just a part of the way we do things around here, I think we'll see more and more people with disability that working from home suits uh, successful in roles and finding employment. I mean, this all this sounds so fast, like incredibly fascinating. One of the things that I really liked about the the kind of the the ethos of the site as well, which you've you've touched on repeatedly, um, is the fact that it's been built by people with disability for people with disability. Like, what what sort of experiences? You know, the team actually building the platform and the AI parts of it. What t- types of experiences have they? uncovered um, and kind of approaching a project like this that way? I mean, the the wealth of experience that the team has brought due to their lived experience of disability uh, has been incredible. And every day, I think the, the really important thing to note here is that just because someone's got disability doesn't mean they're an expert across every disability. And I, myself... I've obviously um, had low vision, been using a screen reader, but then we've got other people in the team that are people with short stature, that are people who use power wheelchairs, people with autism. And when you've got that wide range of people with disability from every every walk of life, we're suddenly building a well-rounded product. Because for me, when I'm doing testing, I'm coming at, at it from... My own personal experience, the barriers that I've uh, I've faced and that I've had to try and overcome uh, quite often unsuccessfully when I was up against uh, up against it and first lost my eyesight. But I think we've created a really well-rounded product that caters to the entire disability community. However, it is completely new. There's nothing like this out there, and we know it's not going to be perfect. So again, we're encouraging. Job seekers, hiring managers, people with disabilities that if you are on the platform and something isn't working, to get in touch with us because we've consulted with as many people with disability as we possibly can um, and we're going to continue to strive to improve and make changes so that it caters to absolutely everybody. Ben, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. If people want to find out more, where can they head to? Yeah, so it's the field.jobs is the place to go and as a job seeker uh, you can definitely sign up create your profile have a look around at the the jobs that are available and if you're an organization the the thing to remember is and and the thing that we want to make sure that everyone buys into is you don't have to have a disability specific job or a role going that would be perfect for someone with a disability because 
any job someone with a disability can do. Uh, so any job that you're posting for, advertising for, should be going on the field as well as your other mainstream channels that will open up uh, the opportunities for people with disability to apply, more candidates coming your way to potentially find the best suited person for that role, and that person may happen to have a disability. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hey, it's weird news of the week time and boy, is there some weird news out there. <laughs> Paul, what have we got? Let's let's kick it off. For those of you who are watching the... Uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying it. Let's just see what's happening with Twitter. Mass um, exodus to Mastodon <laughs> and everything um, else. <laughs> and have made the jump to, to Mastodon. Uh, sadly, uh, they have officially retired the toot, um, <laughs> which, is, which is what they were calling the tweet. Um, so apparently I haven't logged on to, to properly today, even though I've only, I think I've only posted tooted twice. Uh, but <laughs> and no, you'll never toot I'll again. I'll never toot again. Um, <laughs> Guilty tweet have got no rhythm. Yeah, uh, in in the newest version of Mastodon, which is apparently version four point zero zero, apparently the new web app, the toot button has been replaced with a publish button, um, much to the the gnashing and wailing of, of many of, of its users. Um, right, publish so, is a bit dry. <laughs> publish is a little bit dry. Um, if you're using one of the the many many uh, third party or alternative. Uh, to the the web app you probably can keep tooting um, as long as you can (laughs) because it's open source you could probably write your own tutor uh, if you wanted Um, someone should stop me before we we (laughs) run out of jokes we actually can understand why they stopped using toot considering both of you had euphemisms for it which weren't really appropriate that's true and you, you were just like it's a trumpet it's a trumpet noise it's a trumpet noise wholesome wholesome 100 percent thank you thank um, you Tell us about uh, Steve Jobs' uh, raggedy sandals. Well, you know, Steve Jobs, the once, you know, messiah of of uh, Silicon Valley, very apropos that he had a pair of not just sandals, they're Berkey's people, um, very well-worn Birkenstocks. They're the, you know, the brown suede variety, which is as Jesus-like as you can get, really. And uh, they were worn by Steve Jobs during the early days of Apple and were initially expected to fetch Sixty to eighty thousand US dollars. Bargain. Um, Bargain. Where are they being sold? On uh, you, you would have thought Amazon, but I don't know if they got along. Julianne's um, auctions uh, went up for sale there on Friday. Okay, because I can't exactly put them on Facebook Marketplace. It's not the right audience. And <laughs> stick, it, stick it on eBay, it'll be fine. Sotheby's don't <laughs> really touch tree. this. Yeah, but anyhow, one bidder has paid um, over two hundred thousand dollars for these sandals. Uh, and they came with a 360-degree non-fungible token just for when those sandals wear out completely and you want the valueless digital asset to go with it. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Oh, oh my gosh. Not <laughs> that, no, I'm not saying all, all non-fungible tokens are valueless. You know, there's plenty of there's plenty of art out there that I actually rate. But um, I don't know. The 360 sandal view... Look, the real, the real value, the real genuine value is in the listing, which sell says that us, the shoes retain the imprint of Steve Jobs' feet, which had been shaped after years of use. $200,000, wow. bang, there you go, done. Yeah, when you only see one pair of Berkey footprints in the sand, it's because Steve Jobs was carrying you. Yeah, it's great, it's great. To close out the show, Vanessa, beautifully done. Well done. You, yeah. 
we want to say a big thank you to our very heartwarming and not cynical at all guests this evening who we appreciated. Mina Thamaraja, who I'm desperate to say her name correctly, from Huey Books, and Ben Pettingill, who talked to us about the Field website. Uh, thanks so much to our listeners tonight. Thanks, Joe and Paul, for hosting. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and podcaster, Carrie Smythe. Uh, we've been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.